there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. I am so thrilled you press play. If you're struggling in school now, or maybe you graduated just barely and are struggling in life or on your job, But because reading is challenging for you, or maybe doing simple math is hard, let alone analyzing different written materials while focusing on your work is almost impossible, then this, my friends, is the episode for you. Because my next guest is an expert on learning disabilities, also known as learning differences, which you may or may not have. But either way, you may want to better understand what they are and what they are not. But before I introduce you to Kathleen Schantz, the head of the incredible lab school here in Washington, D.C., I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter that brings you an exclusive preview every Monday as to what episodes and what guests will be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org to sign up. It couldn't be easier. And while you're there, please check out all the other amazing professionals we've had on the show. They're even organized by career, so you can find exactly what you're interested in. And now, my coffee-loving friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my distinguished next guest is Catherine Schantz, who is approaching her 10th year as the head of school at the Lab School of Washington. The Lab School is an innovative learning community fostering scholarship and creativity in students with language-based learning differences. And I'm going to interject here right now because you may hear a noise in the background. And unfortunately, we are under a flight path for now. National Airport in Washington, D.C., so occasionally you may hear some noises. That's why. Nishantz has 30 years of experience in the field of learning disabilities and ADHD. She has taught at all educational levels, from public schools to specialized independent schools for students who learn differently, all the way up to the university level. Her research and experience have focused on high school students with specific learning disabilities and ADHD, including defining learning disabilities, assessment, and intervention in both the classroom and clinical settings. Catherine, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. It's a delight to be here today speaking with you on this very interesting topic. Thank you so much. And it really is an honor to have you here with us on Time for Coffee. I would like to begin our caffeinated chat today by just reading a list of the extraordinarily talented and successful people in a wide variety of industries who are believed to have or may have had, we believe because these are historical figures, whether it's dyslexia or some form of dyslexia, which in a nutshell, and we'll get into it, is tremendous difficulty reading. They include 
Richard Branson, Leonardo da Vinci, Walt Disney, Albert Einstein, Jim Carrey, Tom Cruise, Billy Bob Thornton, Jennifer Aniston, Steven Spielberg, Magic Johnson, and I really could go on and on, as I'm sure you could as well. My first question for you, Catherine, is what are learning disabilities and not the scientific or neuropsych lingo that you would speak with your peers using? Can you put it into everyday language to help those of us who aren't in your profession or in the medical profession better understand what they really are? Well, learning disabilities or learning differences, as I prefer to call them, are unexpected difficulties, given that most people experience a wide range of things that they do very well. And for example, this might be that you have difficulty recalling math facts, but you might be one of the best students in the class in figuring out how to solve a problem. You just might never get the right answer because you might not multiply and know those math facts quickly. Or say you love Shakespeare and you're really good at interpreting the play and in the meaning behind Shakespeare's ideas, but you can't spell his name. So those would all be kinds of learning differences that people run into. And we have a large range of neurodiversity in this wonderful domain of being human. And I think that one of the things I've always experienced is I'm not very good at music. I can't carry a tune. So I always say, what if the world of school required everybody to sing every day all their answers, I would be considered someone with a learning disability. So one of the things we have to remember is learning differences really show up depending on the situation that we put ourselves in. And certainly in college, many of us who have difficulty with reading find ourselves in a world of text where we're always asked to get our information from text and it becomes very difficult for us. But that does not mean that we are not as smart as our peers. Absolutely. What are the most common learning disabilities that exist and how do they manifest? I love how you said you might be really good at analyzing Shakespearean text, but when it came to spelling out Shakespeare's name, you would struggle. Now, would that be dyslexia, for example, or could that be dyslexia? What would you call that? Sure. Dyslexia has lots of different manifestations, but you can be very severely dyslexic or just a touch dyslexic. And most dyslexics, which means you have difficulty with words, comes from the Greek language. And it probably are going to, if you are dyslexic or someone with dyslexia, you probably are going to also be a poor speller. So poor spelling comes along with this difficulty. And usually you're a slower reader. And when you begin to read, you usually have difficulty with the phonological knowledge of the language matching the sound symbol relationships. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the most common learning disabilities. About 80% of learning disabilities involve difficulty with reading. Also, we have something called dyscalculia, which is the difficulty with math. As, as I referenced earlier, you might not know your math facts and find it incredibly difficult to learn your multiplication tables. But that doesn't mean that you're not a good mathematician. You might be very good at figuring out mathematical equations, doing algebra. You might be 
superior in geometry because maybe you have wonderful visual spatial capabilities. So these are things that are specific to one area, but do not mean that you don't have other capacities. What about something called dysgraphia? What is that? Dysgraphia is two things. One, people have difficulty with their handwriting, but they also probably have difficulty with the spelling. So it has anything, writing those symbols can be affected and be part of the dysgraphia. And it can be very frustrating because people can have wonderful ideas and they might have a a mind that is filled with ideas and things that they want to express, but it becomes very arduous task for them to get that down in written form. So I'm thinking right now as you're talking, I think I have dysgraphia because my handwriting is awful. In fact, it's so bad. There are times I have difficulty deciphering what I've written. And when I was a journalist and I had to write things down in my notebook, sometimes it was like I tried to come up with a shorthand way of making words abbreviate so that I could write quicker. But nevertheless, I'd go back to read my notes and I'd think, what the heck did I mean by that? So what is it about the brain and the way that it is creating content or the hand that it's creating content that is so messy? Well, we don't really understand all of that. Certainly the functional MRI imaging is doing a wonderful service for us in terms of showing us how our brain is lighting up and what processes are very fluent for us or those that are slower than average or not as activated. And so it it really has something to do with the messaging that's getting through to your brain. And it also, there's a motor component and there's a language component and the two have to work pretty nicely together in order to serve you well. And not all people have that capability. Some people who are very dysgraphic, of course, when they're sitting in a college lecture and trying to take notes, the problem is when they go back to look at their notes at the end of the day and study for the exam, they can't read their notes. And they likely didn't get enough of the notes down to have complete information. So it's it's a tricky diagnosis and it's one that really impacts college students and can impact you later in life as well. As you say, if your profession requires you to be writing very quickly and taking notes and then being able to read them back to yourself. Well, and fortunately now, so many college students are able to bring their laptops into the lecture hall or into the classroom and whether they are writing on a laptop or writing on an iPad or even on their phones, sometimes typing with their thumbs, that's a huge advantage. And way back in the day when handwriting used to matter, oh my goodness, that was really torturous. Very torturous. And nowadays it's like, uh, so your holiday card isn't the most beautifully written thing, right? Life goes on. It's not the end of the world. What about different processing disorders? What are they and how do they manifest? Processing disorders are really important to understand because they relate to how quickly you can do certain tasks. And you can have an auditory processing disorder or difference, and you can have a visual spatial difference. And it really is about how quickly you can process that 
kind of information. So if you're sitting in a lecture and you're listening to the professor and you have an auditory processing disorder, it's going to be hard for you to take in that information quickly enough to get every detail and every piece of what the professor wants you to know. And And likewise, with visual spatial, I like to think about when you go into a grocery store and you you know, there's just a sea of options and you're trying to get your bearings as to shall I look up or down or over? Where is that little jar of spice that I want? And for some people, that's very disorienting and it's difficult. Other people are very organized and will just scan right down and be able to find the the item quickly. I mean, we all have that experience of seeing people just sit there staring at the rows and rows of food. So those things really can require you to work harder and longer. You have to have the stamina to do that, but it's all possible. I think it's the important thing is it doesn't mean that you're going to know less. There's lots of ways to get that information. And if you can stay with it, you'll perform at the same level as your peers. Absolutely. One that we did not mention, and I'm not going to call this a learning disability, and I think you would agree with me, is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. There's also ADD. Could you please, first of all, distinguish between the two and explain how they manifest? Sure. Well, with attention disorders, there are people that have hyperactivity associated with it. They're those wonderfully high energy people that are always scanning the environment and have trouble sitting still for long periods of time. And there are also those that have what an attention deficit that's called an inattentive type ADD. And it means that you're probably a daydreamer. Don't really stay with the conversation all the time. You're looking out the window. You're not talking about it, but you're not totally present with the conversation or the lecture that's going on. And all these things maybe are not called a learning disability, but they certainly impact your learning. And they can really, one of the things about your attentional system is that you have a working memory. And if your working memory isn't a big enough box to hold the information and manipulate it so that you can then get to the point at which you're understanding all the information, it can really cut down on how well you're doing with academic tasks or you know, even being in a, a job performance. But on the other hand, it also can be an asset that you are very, you're moving from here to there all the time. You're taking in a lot of different information. And there are a lot of jobs in this world that require you to be very high energy and able to flex and able to, lots of people with ADHD can speak very quickly, can speak spontaneously, really have some great talents related to it as well. It's a mixed bag, but if it's not attended to, it's not a good match often with school. School is really asking you to attend to something that someone else has decided is important. And ADHD people really prefer to attend to high interest material. So it's harder for them to be compliant. And it's also hard for them to sit that long. And they might not learn as well sitting still. They might be the type that need to get up and pace in order to learn or or move around in the back of the room. And interestingly enough, they might look like they're not listening or not hearing, but Quite often, they're taking in an awful lot of the information, and they usually have pretty strong intelligence. 
So we want them to be able to demonstrate that intelligence. And sometimes the ADHD gets in the way. For those young listeners, Catherine, who suspect that they may have one or more of these learning differences, and they're currently enrolled in a college or university, where can they go to get tested? And will they likely have to pay thousands of dollars in order to find out for sure if they have a learning difference? Well, I think the first step is to probably go to a faculty advisor, or if you're familiar with the learning support services, most colleges have learning support services. And if you haven't been diagnosed, you might not know where that place is, but your faculty advisor could send you that way. And usually those offices have a long list of people, psychologists and neuropsychologists that can test you. So I always recommend by the time you're in college, I think it's good to go to somebody who considers themselves a neuropsychologist because they do a more extensive battery of tests and they go beyond the IQ test, which is, you know, the intelligent quotient test that's been out there for a long time and really look at the underpinnings to your learning in your brain. And I think when you're in college, you need to know much more than your IQ, really need to know how your brain is working. So to the question of, gosh, am I going to have to spend thousands of dollars? Yes, you are going to spend thousands of dollars unless you're so fortunate that your parents have wonderful insurance and some insurance does cover testing. But what I have to say about that is it is worth the investment because if you think about it, this kind of testing can save you from failing a college course and you are already paying thousands of dollars to be in college. And I think once you find out about your brain, which is, I think, what the testing is all about, you can start to use strategies that will make you successful. So it really pays off in the end to do this kind of testing. I mean, it really will tell you whether you're the type of person who should take a reduced course load. Are you someone who's going to benefit from extended time or maybe not? Or do you need a note taker because you do have auditory processing difficulties or dysgraphia and and taking notes is not your strong So all these things, I think, can really make the difference between failing out of college and being successful at college. So I think $3,000 for testing is really very good investment. What about for those students for whom $3,000 might be just a bridge too far? They don't have those resources. They're on a scholarship. They're in community college, whatever the case may be. Are there other ways for them to hack support? And by that, I mean either through free online applications or online courses that might be available to help them in their schoolwork that wouldn't cost them an arm and a leg. Well, I think that there are books out there. Lauren Brickenhoff has written a wonderful book. It's it's quite old, but it still talks about the kinds of things that you can do to help yourself in college. I, I'm not as familiar with the online, but also Jonathan Mooney is a speaker. He being dyslexic himself and has written on this subject extensively. So I think that there's some books out there that could be really informative and help people understand that they are really smart, that there are accommodations that they could try. The thing about the getting the testing, however, that's what you, when you're in 
college, you have to disclose that you have a learning difference and you need some kind of documentation so that the college will guarantee you those accommodations. So I guess one of the other things I would say is that there are psychologists who will do pro bono testing. And mostly, I think people in support services do know the people who are are willing to do that. And there are also people who are willing to do it at reduced costs. And I think you also can go and talk to some people who can informally help you and and diagnose you just by looking at a writing sample or listening to you read or, or listening to you describe what your difficulty is. So I think that you can at least get to the point where you would know some strategies to try. It certainly is one of the things that I think we should look into more and to see where the resources are, because I think that not having the finances to do this really disadvantages you in terms of this whole field of learning differences and having a level playing field in in the college environment. The other thing about the testing is it should illustrate to you how smart you are. So the testing isn't just to show you what you can't do, but it's also to convince you, persuade you that you really do have capabilities. And our parents often will tell us that for all the years that we're growing up with them, but it's sometimes hard to believe it unless you hear it from a professional. So I think it's really up to us to think about ways in which we can better service people who really need to have this kind of testing. I'm so glad you said that because, and we will later in the interview, get into all of the amazing things that people with learning differences can accomplish in their lives and how to turn things around. You mentioned the IQ test. Someone who I had the privilege to interview a few years ago is Howard Gardner who wrote the seminal book 35 years ago about multiple intelligences and because I'm not in the field, had not had the insight into that perspective until I had the opportunity to interview him, not to put you on the spot, but could you paint the picture of what Howard Gardner's research showed? Well, I think it showed that there are people who have strengths in certain areas and that if they can develop their career paths and maybe even select their colleges based on their strengths, that they're going to have much more success. So there there are people who are very good with words and there are people who are very good with images. There are people with musical intelligence, one of the areas I don't have. Me neither, by the way. <laughs> but I think what he, he showed is that this is really important to, and it goes back to the neurodiversity that I talked about. I think he really is the first one to describe this neurodiversity. And from my own experience, I was in graduate school in a doctoral program, and I was in a course for assessment. And the professor said, the first thing I want to show you is that you all have a learning difference. And we're going to do a series of tests until each one of you fails one of the tests. And so sure enough, these were people getting PhD in linguistics. These were engineers. Myself, I was in psychology. And he was able to find the thing that we could not do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So one of mine was finger tapping. And it's always used with people who have just had strokes or car accidents and see how fast your finger can tap this little button. 
And I failed miserably. And he said, okay, that joke's over. Please do it. Really try this time. So I'm really trying. And what I thought back about was I had to take college prep typing in high school and I failed. I could not type fast enough to pass that test. So it all came back to me that I probably have some kind of speed motor finger disability. But the thing is that it hasn't affected my life so much because now we have computers and you don't have to type perfectly and you don't have to type so fast. And I've been very careful not to ever try to represent myself as an administrative assistant who could take care of everyone's written work and produce it perfectly. So it's really staying out of the areas where your weaknesses are and really knowing yourself. And that's one theme I think I would reinforce over and over. What you really need to do is find out what you really want to do, not what you wish you could be. And I think so many of us get led down the wrong path by wishing that we could do something that our peers are doing or something that our parents did, but really assessing ourselves, being true to ourselves and saying, what is it that I have enough passion to do? And that I also know my strengths are in that area. And I think that's what Howard Gardner, to get back to him, was really talking about, that there are all kinds of intelligences, and the world needs them all. So you just really have to discover yourself. I want to ask you, Catherine, about a 2011 federal study by the National Center for Special Education Research, which said that only about a third of students with learning disabilities, learning differences, graduated from college within eight years. So a third graduated within eight years. That means the other two thirds didn't graduate. Does that surprise you? And if not, why not? Absolutely does not surprise me. First, I would start with the idea that people with learning differences usually end up taking a pretty jagged path through that time of post-secondary school. And there are a couple of reasons for this. It may be that they did not find the right fit, that they're still pursuing what everybody else is saying they should be, and maybe they don't have the passion or the talent for it, and they get in the wrong place. And and once somebody fails out of college, it takes a long time to get back into college and feel good enough about yourself to put yourself at risk again. And I think the other thing is that many students with learning differences go to college and they feel as if they have to put all their time into academics because this is going to be hard. People have told them it's going to be hard. And one of the ways that people are successful in college is by joining an association, having extracurriculars. You need a group of peers that you feel as if you are a member and you have a sense of belonging. And people have studied this and know that this is a really important thing to do. So I think some of students stay in sort of an isolated state. They're kind of white knuckling their way through. Yes, they are. And then I think the other thing is that they, many students with learning differences, and this has been well researched with kids with ADHD and ADD, their frontal lobe development, which is where your executive functioning is and where your attentional systems are, is delayed. And you grow up a 
little later. And so they're in college when those systems of organization and initiation and planning aren't as well developed as their peers, which doesn't mean that they won't develop. They just develop a little later. So sometimes the students with learning differences really should give serious consideration to a gap year. And I think gap years are becoming more acceptable. It's sometimes hard for parents because they're just eager to get their kids through school get that misery over with. It's been a a hard slog with their kids. But this really gives someone the time to develop some of these skills that are so necessary to be successful. And I think it's okay if kids go to college and then drop out for a while and then maybe take a, a year off and then get back at it. They will get there. If you can make sure they aren't losing a lot of self-esteem along the way. So you have to support them and help them figure out what the, the right fit is. Absolutely. I want to interject here because you said that because it takes a while among young people with learning disabilities, often for their frontal lobe to mature and come into its own. And the frontal lobe is the home of our executive functioning muscle. So here's a story for you. It wasn't until I was 45 years old and my son was five and he was diagnosed with, among other things, ADHD and executive functioning challenges. And those often go hand in glove that I had this eye-opening experience in which I said, oh my God, that's what I have. And I was 45 years old and I was having huge challenges organizing my thoughts. I thought I was stupid. I didn't, I mean, I knew I wasn't a stupid person, but I felt stupid that this was such a challenge for me. So how do you explain that? I was a mature woman and yet there I was struggling with this. We know so much more about the brain now. And I think earlier generations, people just said, oh, that's how Susie is and didn't realize how much it was impacting your life, your life choices, your relationships. And now I think by naming what is going on in our brains, we do much better. And I think this is a a good time to talk about the caution about being worried about having a label placed on your brain or your mind or your learning. And I think it's actually a very helpful thing because you can't really know yourself and you can't make the right choices if if you're not really honest where your strengths and weaknesses are and understanding what these terms mean and what they don't mean. So I think we find we do a lot of work with what we call metacognition, which is really having kids understand how their brains work, how different functions, how your language systems interact with your attentional systems, how your emotional regulation can impact whether you're ready to learn that day. So the more you know about yourself, the better off you're going to be. And I think that earlier generations just really just pass this off is, okay, that's the way you are and nothing we can do about it. I have to say, even though I haven't ever been officially diagnosed, it was a huge relief to me to feel that it wasn't that I was an odd man out. There was an explanation behind why my brain had difficulty 
organizing itself. And I have learned shortcuts. I've taught them to myself. And I'm a fully functioning person. I was then, by the way, as the CNN State Department correspondent. So I just say that as a way, maybe for comfort for other people, that you may not realize you have this. Yes, college students, you may not realize this, but 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old people may not realize it. One of the many things that the lab school does so beautifully with your students is to empower them not only to better understand how their own brains work and therefore how to navigate the world and gather knowledge and skills that are going to be essential to their future professional lives, but you also help them to love themselves, you were alluding to this just a moment ago, to respect themselves and to become self-confident and therefore more motivated to learn, which is beautiful. Unfortunately, there are no doubt, we were just talking about this, countless young people in college, maybe even out of college, who feel stupid, frustrated, angry with themselves because they can't read properly or learn the way that their classmates do or their colleagues do. They can't keep track of various responsibilities. I'm so stupid. I keep forgetting to do X, Y, or Z. What stories of inspiration can you provide to those, Catherine, who won't be fortunate enough to go to the lab school of Washington and yet to share with them that there are other ways for them to persevere. The first thing is that you need to understand that researchers have shown that there's maybe 10 to 20%, depending on which research paper you read, of people with identifiable learning differences. So you're, you're among many. And all these people have in some way accomplished wonderful things. So in, you know, might be being a lawyer, a doctor, or it might be something more in the world of imagery with being a filmmaker, or maybe there are quite a few artistic talents that show up in this population, architects, graphic designers. We have several graduates who do jewelry design or are very successful, and the list goes on and on. But I think it's realizing that you're, you are smart and that you must discount what maybe people said. And I've heard time and time again, people say, well, when I was in elementary school, my fifth grade teacher said, you'll never amount to anything. And you must really understand that as a very ignorant kind of statement. The brain changes and it grows and it develops. Neurons grow, your connections grow. And the more you practice anything, the better you get at it. There really aren't a lot of limitations. I wouldn't recommend just as I wouldn't take a job where you have to type all day or you have to sing all day. You know, you have to know yourself, but there are many avenues for you to go down. And I think that you have to have faith in yourself and you have to find all the new avenues that are growing in this society. So the most successful people also look to their peers, look to their colleagues. They never try and go it alone. Even the brightest people 
are not going it alone. And one of the things that people with learning differences often think is that you're expected to do it all by yourself and that you're the only one who's not able to solve a problem. And that's just not true. So once you feel safe enough in your college environment and you can say to somebody, gee, could you prove my paper? I'm not a good speller. You found a very efficient way to get a a much better grade on a paper. There are learning different people in all the universities, no matter where you go. So many of them do have support groups. And I think those learning support services that the university have would know if you're university or college has that. And I think when you go to apply for college and you have a learning difference, we recommend that you not only talk to the admissions people, but you go and talk to the learning support services and see if they really have the accommodations and they can manage the logistics of getting you those accommodations, as well as their brochure suggests to you. And I think, again, they would direct you to a support group. Or, you know, certainly we would say to our students, be an activist. This is a great field to be an activist in and start a support group because there are many people that are sitting out there wishing that they had a peer group. So it would be a wonderful thing to do when you got to college. So we just talked about the way, the many ways that you can be successful with your learning differences. I want to just read something from a Lab School of Washington magazine that you put out quarterly. And in it, you quote, or there's a section from the speech that one of your honorees gave, and I'll say in a moment who the honoree is, but he talked about failure. And what he says, I really do think that the most important skill I have learned is knowing that I am the best failure in the world. I learned to fail every way possible that ever existed in life because everything I did growing up, I failed at. Even in my professional career, I learned to fail. And in many respects, that is what led to all my successes. When you learn to fail, you also learn to succeed. And this man went on to become the president of Goldman Sachs and the director of the National Economic Council, Gary Cohen. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. He's very inspirational, very inspirational. And the idea, and he has dyslexia, that he was a mediocre student at the American University and he made it to the top of Goldman Sachs and the top within the U.S. government. What is the takeaway here for our young listeners who may have dyslexia, who may have dysgraphia about their lives? Well, I think there are two things. One is that adversity lends you strength, and you learn how to deal with frustration. You learn how to persevere and keep moving toward what you want. And I think that we see our students that have had to struggle with reading or spelling or writing or math, that they are much more likely when they get into a difficult situation to keep pushing through. So I think adversity sometimes is a real benefit. And I think the other thing is that we often underestimate what we're capable of. And I think everybody that you would talk to would say, I never imagined myself being able to do this or 
or that, whatever they're doing. We need to have a growth mindset that's been talked about a lot lately, but we really do have to believe that we we have more glass ceilings to break. We have more places to go than we could ever imagine. We all have lots and lots of abilities, and our learning difference is only one slice of ourselves. It is not your whole identity, and we work very hard here to help our students understand that, that this is only one piece of you. So there are lots of other things that are going to lead you to be successful if you can identify them and get hold of them. And not be embarrassed by the failures to own them and see them as the secret sauce to your success. Mm -hmm. That takes some time. I think that's, we can't minimize some of the emotions that we have around our own learning differences. And there are times in our lives when our learning difference doesn't seem to bother us at all. And then there are other times in our lives we get in a situation where it seems as if there's a bright light shining on our weakness. And then we sort of resort to that feeling of poor self-esteem and feeling as if we can't do anything. So there are two things. You need to have that work on that ego strength so that you can recover from that. But you also need to, we all need to learn to avoid those situations where our weaknesses are more prominent than our strengths. We have to be a self-advocate and you have to really know yourself. Absolutely. Now, Catherine, just very quickly, I know when you were an undergrad at Kalamazoo College, you got your BA in economics. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Well, I thought I was going to go to African work and nonprofits. I had studied economics of poverty in developing countries, and I was passionate about it and very invested. But, you know, as many lives that my life took a different turn, I got married to an artist, and that was the end of going to Africa. But I think the the wonderful thing is you have these kinds of degrees and you always find something really valuable in it. And so economics is all about looking at models and variables. And now I'm running a school and it's all about looking at models and variables and trying to figure out which thing is most important and impacting our students the most and which way could I benefit the students the most. So it's really been a, a way of thinking that I participated in during college that has just served me really well, but I would have never known when I was an undergraduate that that would be where I would end up and what I would be doing. One of the questions I try to ask all time for coffee guests is to share a time in their professional life when they struggled. For some of us, we've had not the best colleagues, a jerk for a supervisor. It may have been external to the job. It may have been that the economy was going through a downturn and you were in sales or whatever the case may be. Could you share a story with us, Catherine, from a time when you struggled and most importantly, how you came through the other side, maybe a lesson that you learned in the process? Well, most of us are taught not to quit, correct? So I grew up with that. My parents were very clear that you didn't quit things. So I had a job when I was a doctoral student. And when you're a doctoral student, research is very important. So I you know, knew I had to do research and I signed up for a job coding a professor's interviews, which means that you'd sort of rank them. It's a five because people were more interpersonal or it was a one because the person remained isolated. And I was assigned stacks of papers 
to read. And it was in this dingy old office. There was not another soul around. And I got so that I would be almost literally sick before I would go to work. And I needed this job because it was one of the ways I was supporting my doctoral work. But I got to a point where I just knew I could not persevere. It wasn't my skill set. It was too isolating for me. I'm much more of a people person. And even though I needed the money, I finally quit. And I have never felt so good in my life. And I found something else that was much preferable to make that kind of money. But I think that I really probably would have driven myself quite nuts if I had stayed with it. So I think that's the other thing. When you find yourself going down a false pathway because you think everybody should be doing research and this is the important part of the program, but you're not really cut out for that piece of the program, you can quit and reverse directions. And so I recommend that people keep that in mind. Fantastic advice. Final time for coffee question, Catherine. If you could go back to Kalamazoo College and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would have believed in myself more. I think as I look back, I had wonderful ideas that maybe were beyond where some people were thinking, and I didn't have the confidence to speak out. I was one of two girls at that time, women in the department, because economics was more dominated by men at that time. And so I was a little reticent to speak out, but I often would see my ideas later in print or somewhere. So I would really encourage people to take that risk. If you think you have a good idea, even if everybody else around you isn't thinking about that yet, because it may just have the kernel of idea that is going to really solve one of these enormous problems that this generation is going to have to solve. So be a little risk taker with your novel thoughts and your way out ideas because they might really be right on target. One of the first Time for Coffee guests, Guy Ross, who is a very well-known podcaster and NPR journalist, said his advice to himself would be to dance like no one's watching. <laughs> I think that's, that's another way one. of it saying is. that. Is. Just yeah. go put yourself out there. Stop worrying so much about what other people think about what you're doing. Just do what feels right to you. Say what feels right to you. Well, and I think, you know, people with learning differences are likely, this is a good century for them, the 21st century. We're less worried about the print-based world. The 20th century was more of a wordsmithing world. This is a more of a, a moving visual image world. And many of these wonderful people with dyslexia and dysgraphia have great capabilities, as Howard Gardner would say, in the visual spatial world. And their kind of thinking is really going to be more valued in this century. So I think it's another reason to be very positive about this, because I think there are going to be jobs and opportunities that are really going to match these students' strengths. And they're jobs that we don't even know about. There are apprenticeships. You know, you're not going to have to necessarily go to college to get your job, do an apprenticeship. We're really thinking differently about this and the workforce is going to be a different place. So I think it's going to be a good ride for students with learning differences. 
what a wonderful note to end on. Catherine, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. The work you do here at the Lab School of Washington is just incredible and continued good fortune and wonderful success with the students that you have here. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.